Hello, loyal blog readers. Welcome to our weekly Class Action Wire. I'm joined by my friends and colleagues today, Jesse Stavis and Brian Sullivan. And we're going to talk about uh, ERISA class actions today. Can you two give us a uh, high-level view of the class action landscape in 2022? Sure. Uh, great to be here, Jerry. Uh, the bulk of cases in this area over the last two to three years have primarily asserted that ERISA fiduciaries have breached their fiduciary duties, uh, usually of prudence and loyalty. Uh, plaintiffs will claim that, um, that ERISA plans have been offering expensive or underperforming investment options and charging participants excessive record-keeping and administrative fees. Uh, these claims are so popular that uh, since 2020, more than 200 fee and expense cases have been filed. Thank you, Jerry. Uh, I would just add to Brian's summary that in general, it's challenging to beat ERISA class certification claims uh, because these claims typically assert that discrete types of alleged plan mismanagement led to common injuries affecting large numbers of plan participants in similar ways. So plaintiffs usually don't run into the issues of typicality and commonality that we see in some other class action contexts. Uh, what that means is, is that early dismissal is often a defendant's best hope to avoid the burden and expense of discovery. Well, my own personal experience, defense of uh, class actions under the ERISA statute for employers tend to be big ticket uh, and expensive and serious uh, pieces of litigation. How did employers do in 2022 when it came to the scorecard for class certification grants or denials? Not very well. Uh, in 2022, the plaintiff's bar succeeded in obtaining class certification in 78% of these cases. Well, that means that employers were successful 22% of the time, at least. What were some of the salient defenses that employers relied upon to beat and defeat class certification motions in the ERISA space? Perhaps unexpectedly, uh, the most common defenses don't really involve class certification issues at all, and they come much earlier uh, because companies will focus on uh, arguing that the plaintiffs have failed to state a claim under Rule 12b-6. Uh, there's been a lot of confusion about exactly what plaintiffs need to say in the complaint to get over the 12B6 hurdle. And there was hope that last year, the much-awaited Hughes versus Northwestern University decision would clarify that standard. Uh, but instead, in an uh, eight-to-nothing unanimous decision, uh, they didn't do much of that at all and sort of kicked the can down the road. So the threshold for what will state a plausible claim uh, is still pretty unclear. Were there any particular rulings that struck you as important ones in 2022 if you're an employer in terms of guideposts in the ERISA world? Yes, there certainly were. Uh, Davis versus Salesforce.com and Kong versus Trader Joe's were two significant cases in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, both of these cases involved duty of prudence claims uh, where plaintiffs challenged defendants' alleged failure to select lower cost mutual fund share classes or other investment vehicles. And in both of them, the district court dismissed the claims with the Ninth Circuit reverse. So in Davis, the district court had taken judicial notice of documents that refuted the plaintiff's allegations. But the Ninth Circuit disagreed with this approach and held that, quote, the judicially noticed documents on which the defendants rely are not sufficient at the pleading stage to render plaintiffs facially plausible allegations inadequate. Khan came out just a week later, and in that case, plaintiffs alleged the defendant had selected funds that were just too expensive. The district court accepted the defendant's explanation for this choice and granted a motion to dismiss, but the Ninth Circuit held that this was error and that, quote, defendant's explanation for the more expensive choice 
is unavailing at the pleading stage. But despite some uh, early and significant losses last year, uh, some other more recent appellate decisions uh, provided with a measure of hope. Uh, one example is in Smith versus Common Spirit Health, which was a Sixth Circuit case. The court there affirmed dismissal of a plaintiff's complaint, which largely focused on her plan's retention of allegedly under, underperforming actively managed funds. Uh, the Sixth Circuit was less deferential from the plaintiff's allegations than other courts have been, explaining that she did not, quote, plausibly plead that this ERISA plan acted imprudently merely by offering actively managed funds in its mix of investment options, end quote. Instead, the Sixth Circuit explained that while, quote, pointing to an alternative course of action will often be necessary to show a fund acted imprudently, that factual allegation is not by itself sufficient, end quote. Uh, rather, a plaintiff must present evidence, quote, that an investment was imprudent from the moment the administrator selected it, that the investment became imprudent over time, or that the investment was otherwise clearly unsuitable for the goals of the fund based on ongoing performance. And so the Sixth Circuit reached a similar conclusion with regard to the plaintiff's claims concerning excessive record-keeping fees. That's an interesting analysis. I wanted to switch gears uh, just slightly and talk about the impact of arbitration agreements with class action waivers. How is that particular defense uh, working out in the ERISA class action space? Not as well as it has in others. Um, despite the successful reliance on arbitration provisions with class action waivers and other areas of the law, federal courts have been less consistent in the ERISA space. Uh, some federal courts have, uh, of appeal have enforced these provisions, but others have not, and they've held that instead provisions like those cannot preclude plan participants from bringing representative claims under ERISA. Jesse, if um, one would look to significant rulings on the arbitration front, in your opinion, what was uh, the most significant ERISA ruling involving arbitration last year? Sure, well, Holmes versus Baptist Health South Florida uh, was a very interesting case. Uh, their plaintiffs alleged the defendants breached their fiduciary duties by failing to review and contain costs and by choosing expensive investment options over cheaper or better performing ones. Uh, the defendants there sought to enforce an arbitration agreement that included a class action waiver that precluded an individual from receiving remedial or equitable relief. Plaintiffs challenged enforcement of the agreement by arguing that it violated what's called the effective vindication doctrine. And the effective vindication doctrine theoretically allows plaintiffs to invalidate an arbitration agreement if it precludes them from effectively vindicating their federal statutory rights. The court rejected this argument and granted the motion to compel arbitration. Uh, the court held that there was no authority in the 11th Circuit for applying the effective vindication doctrine in this context. And it also held that while individual plan participants never agreed to arbitrate their alleged uh, claims, the plan itself had. Given the high predominance of certification in ERISA class actions, when you sit down to architect a defense uh, to help an employer fight off one of these lawsuits, what other areas gain traction in 2022 in terms of defenses to preempt these sorts of class actions? Well, you always want to evaluate whether a class action complaint um, contains class action allegations that uh, pass muster. Uh, and so one of the strategies in that regard is to evaluate whether the plaintiff has alleged what's called a fail-safe class. And that's one that defines uh, the class membership based on the determination or resolution of a merits issue. For example, it would, it would include a, a class defined to include all individuals whose rights were violated. 
so in, in White versus Hilton Hotels retirement plan, the court held that the plaintiff's uh, proposed class was an impermissible fail-safe uh, class and denied class certification. There, uh, the plaintiffs have challenged certain vesting determinations made by the plan and that uh, they allege that the defendants failed to keep proper documentation related to their claims. Uh, the plaintiffs sought to certify a class of plan participants who submitted claims for, quote, vested retirement benefits, end quote, and have been denied vested retirement benefits by the defendants in various ways. The court determined that insofar as the plaintiff's class definition depended on whether an individual had vested retirement benefits, it was an impermissible fail-safe class because the question of whose rights have been violated is central to the merits and the action. And uh, defendants also succeeded in decertifying a class in Haley versus TIAA. Uh, in that case, the Second Circuit decertified a class with more than 200,000 putative members. Uh, the plaintiff in Haley alleged that a loan program the defendant had offered to her 403B defined contribution retirement plan was a prohibited transaction under ERISA. She sought to certify a class of approximately 8,000 employee benefit plans whose fiduciaries contracted with the defendants to provide similar loan programs. The program that plaintiff challenged offered loans that were secured by plan participants' retirement savings. The plaintiff sought to hold the defendant liable as a non-fiduciary under ERISA. Basically, her argument was the TIAA knowingly participated in the alleged violation by her plan fiduciaries. The district court allowed these claims to proceed and ultimately certified the class under Rule 23b3. On appeal, however, the Second Circuit reversed. The court felt the plaintiff had failed to establish predominance because analyzing one of the ERISA exemptions that potentially applied to the challenged transactions would require the court to focus on the conduct of individual fiduciaries in determining loan program pricing and determining how each of the 8,000 plans set their pricing would require an individualized treatment. And so a massive class action was an inappropriate vehicle for resolving the alleged claims. Well, thank you both for that analysis. Very interesting. Obviously, the holy grail on the plaintiff side of the V is converting class certification uh, orders into cash and to strike settlements. In 2022, what did the ERISA uh, class action settlement space look like in terms of the top 10 settlements compared to other years? Uh, well, in 2022, it was, uh, it's been a consistent trend over the last few years. So uh, the top 10 class actions uh, settlements in 2022, the total was uh, $399.6 million, uh, which was almost the same as last year, which came in at $411.05 million. Uh, and the top 10 values over the preceding four years have been essentially flat. Jesse, what would you say to corporate counsel in terms of the signal of what that sort of settlement activity means for 2023? Well, without additional guidance from the Supreme Court, plaintiffs are going to continue to have success fending off defense challenges, challenges to standing and the satisfaction of Rule 23A's commonality, typicality, and adequacy requirements based on factual differences between the representative and class claims and the enforceability of mandatory arbitration and class action waiver provisions. Without further clarifying guidance from the Supreme Court, ERISA class action litigation will remain an active area with significant financial upside for the plaintiff's bar and high defense and settlement costs for defendants in 2023. Well, thank you, Jesse and Brian, for your thought leadership and joining us on the weekly podcast. Uh, loyal blog readers, uh, we'd like to hear from you, and thank you so much for tuning in and joining us for our discussion on ERISA class action litigation. Have a great day.